The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a warrantless home gun confiscation case was unconstitutional. Professor Buzz Sher breaks it down. This is The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the fact of your host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, Buzz, what was the case, Coniglia v. Strom, that this was centered around? So um, the police were called to a house for a wellness check. Uh, the wife or the ex-wife or the girlfriend was concerned about the, uh, the mental health of uh, the man in the house to whom she had some relationship. The police went in without a warrant and, among other things, seized the gun. And he was not supposed to be in possession of a gun. Uh, and, and he was charged. And the issue broadly was this. Let me give you a, a frame it a little bit. Generally speaking, the Fourth Amendment requires if you're going to search a, a place in which someone has a privacy interest, an expectation of privacy, like the home, in particular the home or somebody's body, you need, generally speaking, the rule is you need a search warrant supported by probable cause. There are, in this case, they didn't have a search warrant. Um, they just went in. Uh, there are a number of exceptions to the, what's called the warrant requirement. You know, if they see something in plain view, if there's exigent circumstances, uh, if there's consent, uh, there's a, a, you know, seven to nine exceptions to the warrant requirement. One of the exceptions that's developed in the last 10 or 15 years it's called the community caretaking exception. That if they're worried that there's some somebody in danger in the house, they can go into the house without a warrant uh, and in the interest of protecting that person, you know, as the, the, the label says, community caretaking. The issue in this case was how broad was that exception? Uh, their, their use of that exception or the, the prosecution's defense of the actions of the police using that exception was exceptionally broad uh, in the way they described it. And interestingly, the Supreme Court uh, very strongly said, no, you don't get to use it in this kind of circumstance. You've got to it's got to be a much more circumscribed uh, set of factors uh, occurring before you can use the community caretaking exception. Otherwise, you know, it's just carves a huge hole in the warrant requirement. Yeah. And this this is kind of a gray area case by the sounds of it. I mean, the, the reason why they at least according to this news source I found was uh, Mrs. Con- uh, Mr. Canigula and his wife were arguing when he put an unloaded gun on the table and said, quote, shoot me now and get it over with, end quote. Um, so apparently she, at least according to this, she knew it was unloaded at the time. Yep. So it was a pretty broad effort uh, to open the, a big hole in the warrant requirement, because if it was allowed in this circumstance, when uh, all he was t- saying is asking the wife to shoot him now with an unloaded gun, which suggests it was, if not tongue in cheek, not a really serious request. Um, if, if they were allowed, she left, if they were allowed to go in at that point uh, uh, to investigate what's happening, uh, that's a pretty that's a pretty broad exception. You know, then then they could go in whenever 
they thought something was amiss. You know, it felt like what the police did was, well, maybe something weird's going on here. It's a strange set of circumstances, so let's go in. And what was important about the court's decision is they emphasized that this was somebody's home. It was his home. And they give, in addition to someone's body, they give maximum privacy protection to entries in the home. And so you really got to have a well-articulated, specific uh, uh, set of circumstances before we're going to let you intrude on uh, a person's privacy in their own home. And that really goes, I feel like this is like the perfect case to get um, to decide with them on because it's the Fourth Amendment, which the the liberal justices feel very strongly about. And then the Second Amendment, which the conservative justices have strong opinions on. Yeah, that's true. But also it's the home fact, the home issue that it was a home rather than a car. Yeah. uh, For example, Um, the conservative, a number of the conservative justices have uh, Thomas wrote the opinion, uh, have very strong feelings about protecting privacy in the home. There's a famous uh, uh, protecting privacy in the home case called Kylo versus the United States was decided 10 plus years ago, maybe more. Uh, 15 years ago. Uh, And in that case, the police used thermal imaging technology to measure the heat emanating from somebody's house to see if there is a particular intensity in the heat emanating from a place they thought he was in the house where they thought he was using grow lamps to grow marijuana. and they, they, you know, and they they were in a public place when they were measuring the heat emanating from the house. The, what the the technology didn't enter the house; um, it just measured what was coming out of the house and reaching a public place. Uh, they found that was an intrusion on the privacy of the home, and the police needed a warrant to do that. And Justice, uh, the now deceased. Justice Scalia is the one who wrote that opinion, very strong opinion. So there's this strain of libertarianism among the more conservative judges that is provoked when we're talking about privacy of one's home. Do you think this is going to have any impact on red flag laws that are currently existing in some jurisdictions? Oh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, I think there are constitutionality problems with our red flag laws because they're taking away at least temporarily a constitutional right to possess firearm uh and most of the red flag laws that i've read i you know worked on a project in the legislature with this and and worked with a student a law student who uh, jennifer lyon who was writing a note uh, about this um uh the argument is when you're taking away a constitutional right be it the Fifth Amendment, the right, you know, not to incriminate oneself, uh, or the Fourth Amendment, uh, you know, uh, you need to have a set of a, a process, due process, accorded that person. And many of the red flag laws, somebody can go in and say, "I'm scared of AJ because he's got guns." And three years ago, he said, "You know, if I got out of line, I was he was going to use the gun." Um, and in some of the ways some of these are written, they can the judge can order without the person even knowing that this is going on, can order the police to go into the house to take the gun. Um, I think there's a, a measure of 
of due process necessary, a combination of entering the home, provoking that aspect from conservative justice, and treating the self, the Second Amendment uh, right to possess uh, arms uh, more seriously by according uh, when you're removing somebody's firearms, we're taking away at least temporarily their constitutional right to possess arms. Uh, you do some much more due process than many of these red flag laws uh, provide. The Biden administration spoke out in support of uh, the guns being taken away in this situation. Uh, it's once again, politics getting sucked into what's going on in the legal realm for better or worse. Um, I mean, ultimately, if there wasn't a legislation or executive order that went through that, do you, which would kind of involve the circumstances of this case, would it get struck down? Uh, it really depends on how it's written and what kind of process uh, is in place. Um, you know, if 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 uh, the, if somebody is reporting to the police that they're scared of this person and this person has a gun and they want an order from a court and the police go to the court or the person goes to the court and gets the order without the, any notice to the person. I think that's a very, with this court, there's a decent chance that that would get struck down. But if the person from whom the, they're wishing to take the gun, they notify that person, uh, that person is entitled, gets a lawyer, they get a hearing, they can call their own witnesses, they can cross-examine the person who said, uh, take the gun away, um, then I think there's a chance it would stand up. I mean, the tough cases are, there's three kinds of cases. There is the, uh, the uh, mass casualty shooter, um, who's acting weird and they know they has guns. Uh, and, and there is the death, uh, suicide by gun group of people. And then there's the domestic violence uh, cases. Uh, the first two, there's, uh, there's been a lot of research done in that area that establish if you see these, if you see these many different criteria present in a situation, we uh, that is fits the profile of one who's going to may well be a mass casualty shooter and should, uh, with due process, should empower the police or the judge to order that the guns be taken away. In the domestic violence circumstance, the data is not as good. Uh, it is more yeah, this person fits in a group of people, a large group of people who are more likely to commit violence with a gun, but there, it, there's not an individualized diagnosis of the individual in that case. So in thinking about red flag laws, it's important to separate the uh, uh, suicide by gun and mass casualty shooter group where they have good data, uh, individualized data for uh, a specific person fitting a profile, and the domestic violence circumstance where it's just uh, they're in the group that is at higher risk of uh, engaging this behavior, but it's a, not an individualized diagnosis. The second, that you know, the, that group, that non-individualized diagnosis group, I think uh, uh, these red flag laws that pull those that group in and mix the two groups I've described, they're at more risk, uh, given that they're they're anticipating 
you know, with them not having individualized data, all you're really doing is saying, looking forward, we think this person may commit a crime. They haven't committed one yet. We think they may commit a crime. So we're going to take their, their constitutional right to possess a weapon away. That's a little shakier ground for a number of reasons than we've done. We have some studies, and I, I, I spent a lot of time talking with an individual who uh, worked for the behavioral unit of the FBI, the behavioral sciences unit of the FBI, studying mass casualty shooters. Uh, and you know they developed this kind of diagnostic profile that says, you know, this particular person is at risk. Uh, and, uh, and with due process, uh, that stands a chance of, that kind of legislation stands a better chance of standing up. The problem is politically, uh, there are, you know, for example, in New Hampshire, the Coalition Against uh, Sexual and Domestic Violence is a very powerful political organization, and that's true nationally. And so those two groups get blended, and you end up getting poorly drafted legislation because they try and bring too many people into it. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.